Now, I add my word of welcome to that of Pastor Adam this morning. It's good to be with you and to dig into this wonderful passage of Scripture during our time in the Word of God. In the early 1900s, famous French writer said this, If you want to build a good ship, don't just give the people tasks to do. Get the wood and frame this and nail this here. Don't do it that way. Teach them to have a love and an appreciation for the endless immensity of the sea. Then they will build you a good ship. He sought to motivate, to inspire, to get to the heart. In the same way, Paul does that for us with this passage in 1 Thessalonians. The greatest inspirational coaches and speeches, you see them reach down into the heart of the, of the players to speak to their identity before what they go and do. But we have all kinds of doing issues, you say. The students who's home, who are home, I have to do these last papers, do these last exams. The working from home technical issues, I've got to figure out this in order to be able to do my job and this challenge that I have to deal with and this I have to do and that I have to do. And all of us wondering what we'll do after the fallout from COVID-19, from whatever the new normal will end up being. But Paul says it's not just about the doing. It's so much more about the being, the identity that we find that Christ has given us. And we can think of the child who goes, who's learning to cross the street and is taught to look not just two ways, left, right, but a third way, left, again. Three looks. And Paul is going to have us to look three ways before the cross. All three ways before Christ and the cross. We're to look back and to remember the past. Remember the work of the Holy Spirit. Look to the present. Who is it that we're following and who might be following us? And then finally, the third look to look forward to the one we are waiting for, for the future. Three looks before the cross. And in our reading in this passage, we're going to pick up in verses uh, 4 through 10. An interesting thing in, in Pauline fashion, verses 2 through 10 are all one massive uh, Greek sentence, a kind of a as Paul does a nice long run-on sentence for us. So Pastor Adam last week did the wonderful sermon on uh, verses 2 and 3 and ran out of breath and is handing this off to us for verse 4 through 10, the rest of this sentence. So here we have Paul writes, God speaks, this powerful, encouraging, inspiring word of God. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but this word can, should, will stand forever. Lord Jesus, thank you for what we will see. May you be glorified in this. In your name we pray. Amen. So we begin in verses 4 and 5, and I ask you, if you would, if you've got a Bible, please to uh, look along in the passage. We're going to walk through it. There's also an outline there on the website if you wanted to grab that. But our first point is to look back to the past. And we're in this book of encouragement, as Pastor Adam has said, rightly so. And there are four chapters before Paul even gets to telling us to do anything. In, in God's economy, we are human beings. Before human doings, our identity matters. Now, there are implicit commands and, and application that we will get out of this, but the amazing thing of just Paul's focus of fact after fact. And so we come in in verse 4. And we're in the middle of a prayer because he began the prayer in verse 2. But Paul points out here, for we know, we know, starting with a fact. And in this prayer that he's praying there, he goes on to say brothers. A nice gender inclusive term. Uh, Nice to be inclusive in this day and age we're in. This brothers really means brothers and sisters as well. And they are loved by God. Loved by God. And a better translation is really um, to think of it as while being loved by God. It's, it's what's called a perfect tense where there's the past effect of having been loved by God. But that goes on and has a present effect that we continued to be loved by God. And that affects us. In this wonderful way. And you could say um, that, that Paul, one, one of the wonderful things here too, is Paul, in his physical distance from uh, his friends, his Thessalonian friends that he had met with months before, he's now in Corinth, about 350 miles away. This physical distance does not hinder Paul's social distance. From them, He writes them this handwritten letter that will impact them and then impact millions, literally billions of people through this handwritten letter that he wrote. You just think about it. when's the last time uh, you've written a handwritten letter? Well, I can just text or Insta or email. But what about the effect of a handwritten letter saying, you mean that much to me that I'm going to take the time uh, to write you a handwritten letter. 
the, the beauty and the, the, the value uh, that you're placing upon that person. And another thing we see in this, just simply put, is, is the value of, of prayer and then also, at times, letting people know what you're praying for them. Paul is going through this, and he's saying, this is what I'm praying for you. Let it be known, and, let, and be encouraged by that. Um, we've started with our family. We just have a very simple uh, prayer book uh, at the meals, and, and we say, this is what we're praying for the children. And so that our children get to hear the prayer that we're praying for them, not that we lord it over them later and say, look, we've been praying this about you or for you and you're not doing it. No, it's just tender prayer saying, this is what we're trusting God to do in and for you. And Paul is letting the Thessalonians know what he's praying for them. But next, as we go on further in the verse, in verse four, we get to what we might call uh, kind of an elephant in the room. When you first saw the passage come up, you probably saw almost in your, your mind's eye the word chosen, kind of in glaring uh, lights there. Kind of as you look at that passage again, you see uh, that, that word amplified, chosen, or elect. And we have that challenging theme there that Paul's laying out for us. And so there are three things that we want to affirm biblically in election in this term chosen the first is that we want to affirm God's sovereignty in in many confused uh, election and, and omniscience or foreknowledge and kind of try to get God off the hook but end up selling God short they'll say that that God looked into the future and he sees for instance Adam and Deirdre, oh, a wonderful couple. This pastor and the pastor's wife, Deirdre, oh, they're so wonderful. They're great. Therefore, I'll put them, we'll take them on my team. That's not, that's not election. That's like throwing a dart at the wall and then going later and drawing a bullseye around it. In effect, election is really more like God sees in the future and he sees, oh, there's Daryl out there. Oh, boy, good grief. About the only thing, well, he married up, he got Donna, yeah, but his contribution, he got lost. That's about all I can say about him. But I choose him. I put my stamp of election, I choose him out of my mercy, my grace. Election is intimately linked with love, with love. God's sovereign, gracious, merciful choosing of his people. And secondly, it's meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to be an encouragement. The readers were not to rest ultimately in their own work or own merit, but in the work of God. In this Resting in that is, is a backdrop, in effect, to the whole letter, a foundation for it, for these Thessalonians. And then thirdly, God's election of you as a believer must produce a sense of humility, or else we don't get it. 
Think of the bumper sticker. It says, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. This would be like saying, you know, some people would say, well, I'm, I'm elect, sorry if you're not in the book of life. No, no, no. That is not where election takes us. It should be taking us to a sense of humility for sure. But then the question might come in your mind, well, what, what if I'm not one of the elect? Or what if this person's not one of the elect? That's not our decision. That's not for us. That's in the, the hidden decreed will of God. And as far as our sharing the gospel with somebody, we should always assume, I hope they are in the book of life. I hope they're one of the elect and I will share the gospel with them as if they are. God's sovereignty does not put aside our responsibility nor their responsibility to respond to the gospel. Paul, the one who wrote the most about election and God's sovereignty, is also the one we see pleading with those Areopagus and, and Agrippa to, today that you would be saved. So Paul then, the question becomes, how do you know the elect? You're saying here, for we know, brothers, that he's chosen you. Paul, how do you, how do you know this? What are you talking about? And the way he justifies that is he says, in effect, we saw fruit. When I was with you before, when I was sharing the gospel with you, the word of God took effect. Paul holds up the word of God and says, it arrived with conviction and power from the Holy Spirit. And he could see that work in their lives and could tell then that you are chosen. You might say in your own life, well, I don't, I don't feel that. It was so long ago that I came to Christ. You know what? Maybe that's okay. Maybe it was years ago. But here's an opportunity for you to say, I'm going to take that time. Uh, my children have never heard my testimony. I'm going to share where the Holy Spirit worked in my life. Or my grandchildren have not. It's a way that it could fan into, the fl fan into flame, as Timothy talks about. Your opportunity to share with them, and you'll be reminded of the conviction that you had and hopefully will be manifested again. Election is the indicative that will affect the imperatives later in this book. So application, our first point of application is this. What is the point of encouragement? Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians. In one sense, you could say, well, yeah, it makes them feel good. Well, flattery can also make someone feel good, and that's, that's not so good. <laughs> this encouragement was to help them stay the course, to continue in their walk of faith, as it is for us. This encouragement for us. So that's our first point, that they look back in the work of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. And then the second point is found in verses 6 through 8. We look, we look across, or we look around in the present. We've looked back, we look in the present, and we imitate. The Thessalonians were to realize that another fruit evidenced in their lives of their election was their imitation of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. 
They joined with them, verse 6 says, with affliction and joy, or tribulation and joy. That's interesting that you put those two words together, tribulation and joy. When, but we see that in Scripture. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail singing, where the Holy Spirit has to be the one producing that kind of joy amidst the affliction that they're suffering. I, and I would confess, I, I think there's time I get a, an F minus in, in exhibiting joy amidst affliction. And I look to many in our wonderful congregation who have experienced joy in tribulation, a, a learned contentment, Paul calls it. Not a naive, just be happy, happy, but a Holy Spirit-infused joy. And some of you, brothers and sisters, I, I would say, you're, you've learned it so well, you're scholars, and you are to be commended for your imitation of what Paul is talking about. And the next thing he says that they were doing was they were spreading the gospel, in every place, he says. And as you look at this slide, you see that Thessalonica, uh, Thessaloniki, where the Thessalonians were, was a harbor on a famous road that stretched across the provinces called the Via Ignatia. It was a route from the west coast of Greece all the way over east to Byzantium. Macedonia and Achaia that he references there were Roman provinces that essentially made up uh, Greece, and Thessaloniki was the capital city of Macedonia. And he's saying that as they went along, and you see a picture there, this, this beautiful, relatively small or, or, or thin road, they would travel along it. And they, the word of God was going out from these Thessalonians all over the place, whether it was active evangelism, where they had a plan and points to share, or whether it was maybe just a holy gossip. Where they say, I'm so excited about Jesus, and I just I want you to know about him. The, the, the word of God was spreading through the Thessalonians, out ahead of Paul, and it was reported to him, and he said, you are imitating well. But imitation... Is that really, for us, is that a good thing? When you think of imitation, what comes to mind? I think if you go back a decade or so of the commercials, Be Like Mike, drink this Gatorade and you will have a 40-inch vertical and you'll be dunking just like him, like Michael Jordan. But then when there were also in the same era as Michael Jordan, maybe some like Charles Barkley who didn't have maybe quite as good of an image. And he even said himself, don't look to me to be a role model. Don't imitate me. Should we imitate? Paul says, yes. Now, it was common in the ancient world, say in the, in the times of the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that they were to have imitators. Because if their teaching was worthwhile enough, it would be expected that others should imitate them. So some would say, well, Paul has to say, imitate me, or else my teaching is unworthy. But Paul really has much, much more in mind than that. He has a, a big picture of discipleship, we could say, in mind. 
the word he uses for example in verse 7, so that you became an example, tipos, it was, was a mold or a wooden stamp that you would imprint in the clay to have uh, duplicate images, imitations there. And the one discipling is one who's saying, do as I do. Yes, I will make mistakes. I'm not perfect. But come along, follow me as I follow Christ. They followed Paul and others followed them. So imitation, we need to avoid in in our culture kind of the attitude, the Western individualism that says, be be your own dude, otherwise you're fake or you're phony. No, Paul's saying, and biblically it's saying that we should imitate others of godly character. Elsewhere in scripture says that we are witnesses for good, or for bad. We're we're not off the hook. We are called to imitate. And and it's not that Paul had, (laughs) there are certain biblical offices that don't continue. There wasn't a biblical office of imitator that has, has passed away. Paul is saying we are to imitate. So here's the question, the application. Who are you imitating? And who is imitating you? Titus says, older women, teach the younger women. They're they're to imitate things about you. Older men, discipling younger men. And and with Redeemer, I can say, we, we, we want to build disciples, and some of that involves imitation. So we have we have many Bible studies going on right now that many of you are aware of uh, with that. Discipleship is for sure more than just Bible studies, but it's not less than that. We have many service opportunities. Discipleship is more than service opportunities, but it's not less than that. Imitation. Parents, will your children remember years back, years down the road, my parents' time in the Word, and will they imitate that? And on this this Mother's Day, what a wonderful time it would be For a mother, and many of you are already doing this, but maybe if not, to start praying regularly for and over your children, that they would imitate that later in their lives. Christopher Yuan, in his book, Out of a Far Country, shares how his mother, the impact she had on him, years and years she prayed for him to come out of an immoral lifestyle and the Lord saved him. Much, we would say, because of his mother, his dear mother's prayers faithfully for him. Imitating a father's prayer and leading families at the table. Paul calls us to the importance of imitation, following another as they follow Christ. So we've looked back, we look around in the present, and then we look forward to the future, to the longing for the goal. The Christian life is so much about uh, putting off, but then also there's, there's the putting on as well. And Paul says here that in verse 9, 
that they had turned from, put off idols, and put on the living God. And this was significant for these citizens, these Thessalonians, because just 50 miles to the southwest, likely in view on a clear day, was Mount Olympus, which was believed by the pagans to be the home of the gods. And should the people there do something to draw the ire of the gods, there could be punishment, famine, or other natural disasters. Furthermore, by turning from idols to the one true God, they were also rejecting the imperial cult and their status with Rome and the emperor. So just the Christian would be coming under persecution from rulers, but even from their fellow citizens who felt like you doing this is going to affect us. So it was not easy to turn from these idols. Can remember many years ago with some here from Redeemer when we went on the mission trip to Togo. Dear brother, Olga's husband, Kofi, was returning back to Togo where he had not been in 40 plus years. And then to go back, and we got to experience it with him, to go back to his home village. And there was such tremendous joy from his family members to see Kofi and the joy that he experienced. But as we walked through the village, there were literally little stone idols throughout the village. Now that was not much of a temptation for anyone nor Kofi for any matter. But with his family, as we watched, there was this little ceremony that they were doing. They were so happy to see him and they wanted him to take part in this pagan ceremony. And you could see the, the pain that Kofi experienced, the joy of being with his family and then this pain that they want me to do this, but I have turned from idols and pagan worship and I have embraced the one true God. And we got to experience that his faithfulness, his call, his conviction, because his identity was now in Christ, not these created things. Just as Paul tells us, our identity is in Christ. But we do often, we'll get hooked, even as believers, on, on the good things of creation and start to put them in first place. Just as we heard this morning, those who came to the Sunday school lesson in Revelation where John, near the end of the book, for the second time, he bows before an angel, a, a created being. And we can do that too in various ways. Our idols aren't stone or metal. They're mental. A host of isms that tug us to bow and to give allegiance. Could be consumerism. Consuming is fine. We must consume or else we die. But if the desire for things becomes a demand, we have an idol. We end up grabbing greedily for self-satisfaction, living to get rather than to give. 
or it could be technicism, we might call it, where technology is wonderful as a tool, but becomes an idol. If we're saying, I have to have this in order to not have just downtime where I might reflect on important things. I just have to be distracted. I must have that technicism. Or we might call it, silly word, maybe foodism, where being and eating healthy is great as our bodies are our temples, Scripture says. But back in the 1970s, a large Christian university, they decided they would prohibit overweight students from graduating until they met a certain body fat percentage. That uh, requirement didn't last long at all, fortunately. But we've been chasing it ever since. In effect, born again (laughs) by losing weight, by eating healthy. We can make that an idol. Or finally, politicism, we might call it. Politics are great. They're necessary for governing. But we now look to it for belonging, for righteousness, for deliverance. One of the great statements that shows up in politics effectively is that the only thing better than being right is feeling wronged. We find deliverance, we find identity in politics. And look at how any of those have been heightened in this current time period. Everyone wants to be delivered from COVID-19. Yes. But, but why? We need to get to the heart of it. What specific part of the pandemic, what's that revealing in your heart that may, in my heart, that may really be an idol? What part cries out for deliverance and then from what? That is likely an idol. So Paul takes us now from those isms, those idols, takes us to the rescue, or rather our rescuer, the one for whom we wait in verse 10, the one for whom we wait. And when we think of waiting, and we might say eschatology, the end times, Jesus coming back, we need to realize it's not about just a bunch of predictions. It's a... Eschatology is to affect ethics and how we live now. How we live now as we wait. I was talking with somebody just this week and asked them as we were talking about something, well, where was God in that decision you were making? And they just said, that doesn't have anything to do with God. No, everything, everything has to do with God as we wait for him. And the word Paul uses there in reference to this is rescue. It's a rescue from, see at the end, from the wrath, the wrath to come, the wrath of God. Another point, maybe if you're out there and you're a skeptic, oh great, here we go. Wrath of God again. Brother, sister, we need to realize that we all know in our heart of hearts that justice 
is right. There must be justice for things that are done wrong. And if your hope is that you have done nothing that demands justice yourself, you are justifying yourself. Your much better hope is to go to the place that the wrath has already been spent. The illustration of just a a, a fire doesn't burn where it has burned once before. The fire, the wrath of God was burned completely at the cross. And that is our only hope to go and be at the cross to be rescued. Or else you will suffer the wrath to come. On this Mother's Day, my, my children were wanting to get Donna for Mother's Day a, a goat, and a, a pygmy goat, and not just a pygmy goat, so that it could eat all the grass out in the fields and so forth there. But the, the goat they want to find and haven't gotten one yet is a, a fainting goat. Some of you may be familiar with those. They, the, the videos are hilarious, uh, where when this goat gets scared, and feels it has no hope, it literally just rolls over and faints. I have no hope. I give up and faint. We're in effect saying, as we look to the sun coming, that we have one hope. We're not left without hope that we just faint. We have one sure hope of deliverance. And we don't keel over and faint we wait boldly saying i won't give up i won't rely on idols or other isms my hope my resting my trust is in the rescuer and the word rescue means to set free to liberate to live unimpeded through jesus whose name means god to the rescue Jesus, we wait for you. So Paul closes chapter 1. No direct imperatives for us, but a few implied ones. Because Christian, you are chosen. Receive it humbly. Your identity is in Christ. Put aside the idols, the isms, And wait on him. Wait on Christ alone. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we realize we are uh, hit by so many temptations and idols that speak to us, to our identity. But we realize, as Paul has taught us, our identity is in Christ alone alone and to him we cling thank you jesus in your name we pray amen